0: All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. the gospel of our lord jesus christ according to saint luke at that very hour some pharisees came and said to him get away from here for herod wants to kill you he said to them go and tell that fox for me listen Casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often... Have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: When I was a kid,
0: maybe nine, My brother and I drove down to Mexico with my grandfather and my six-year-old Uncle Juan. Looking back on it, making that four-day drive in a station wagon alone with a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a six-year-old must have required my grandfather to draw mightily on the reserves of strength and discipline he acquired in the United States Marine Corps. And we rode in a blue Ford station wagon. A serviceable automobile, nothing fancy, had vinyl seats, which of course we stuck to, it had lap and shoulder belts, which we assiduously avoided, it had an AM, AM FM radio, which my grandfather never turned on because he liked the silence. Let me just tell you, four days of silence for a nine-year-old is a lot. That's a lot of nothing. That old station wagon uh, wagon went ran pretty well. My grandfather, the, the urban commando, used the radiator block to cook hot dogs for us instead of needlessly stopping at restaurants. But most importantly, that station wagon had an air conditioner, which if you're driving through Texas in the summer is not a non-trivial thing. The air conditioner leaked (laughs) on the front passenger side, right out of the corner. And so we had to put the dump truck part of a Tonka truck uh, underneath the dash in order to catch the distilled water that dripped out so that it didn't soak that plush station wagon carpeting. Every time we stopped, it was our job, and that was really only about twice a day. We were supposed to empty the dump truck on the ground outside, just get rid of it so we could fill it back up again. When we got down to Brownsville, Texas, we We had to prepare for a full day's drive through the Mexican mountains on our way down to San Luis Potosí, which is in central Mexico. It's pretty hard driving, honestly. In the mid-70s, you could drive all day and see fewer than 10 cars. And guess what? Not a single McDonald's in sight. No Dairy Mart, convenience store, gas station. It was just cactus and dirt. Just cactus and dirt all over the place. No rest areas. We crossed the border into Maramoros and on this particular trip, and, and it was like 105 degrees out. And somebody, I don't remember who, said, I'm thirsty. Now, after three long days in the car and countless radiator hot dogs, apparently that was the wrong thing to say in front of my grandfather at that point. Didn't I tell you guys to get something to drink back in Brownsville? You bring the water like I told you? Um, I thought he was getting it. We all three pointed at each other. Well, there's nothing out here. We're not gonna have anything for a long time. Now, regardless of who brought up the whole thirsty thing in the first place, hearing that we were driving through the suburbs of hell without any realistic hope of getting a drink, I mean, it made us all thirsty. Really thirsty. And so we started whining. And whining was something that neither the Marines nor raising 50 kids in a children's home had prepared my grandfather to handle gracefully. He didn't have much use for whining. And by not much use, I mean no use at all. I told you, you didn't listen. Now you're just going to have to wait. Of course, there were sniffles. Not, Not out and out crying, which would have further exhausted the supply of liquids we were hauling around in our little bodies. Tough as he was, though, I think our solemn dejection finally got to my grandfather because he said, all right, look, if you can't wait, then drink the air conditioner water out of the dump truck. Now, even to us, the many adventurers who'd consumed so many Oscar Mayer wieners fresh off a hot engine block, this sounded kind of strange. Something didn't sound right about it to us. I-, I was pretty sure that my parents wouldn't want me drinking air conditioner water out of a plastic dump truck. But I mean, we were so thirsty and... So finally, I, I took the bed of the Tonka dump truck that f- was filled with distilled water from the air conditioner. I passed it back over the seat to my younger brother and my even younger uncle, Juan. Now, I suspect that I thought letting the younger ones go first demonstrated my maturity. And in retrospect, I guess it probably did, but that brief flash of prepubescent wisdom was soon eclipsed by my outrage that they drank almost the whole dump truck full of water. They left me little more than a mouthful I don't mind telling you, I was furious. I said, Grandpa, they drank the whole thing. I mean, I was ready to climb over the seat and teach them a violent lesson about sharing. Now, my grandpa, whom I don't think anyone would have called long-suffering when it comes to child-rearing, he just sort of rolled his eyes and shook his head, that, uh, that sort of universal parental deep sigh. His mildly annoyed response was much less energetic and indignant than I thought the situation merited. I said, Grandpa, come on. I mean, that's just selfish. They drank the whole thing. I only got a mouthful. My grandfather was probably over the whole, I'll just drive three young boys down to Mexico alone thing by this time. I'm pretty sure and my, my, my attempts to elicit indignation or, or even sympathy from a former Marine who did a stint in the Pacific Theater in World War II went nowhere. In fact, he said, selfish? What are you complaining about? At least you got something, I didn't get anything. I remember thinking that he totally missed the point on this whole thing. I mean, after all, he was a 50-year-old man. I was stunned. It it, it was dispiriting to me to think that, at nine years old, I was the only person who understood injustice, the tragedy of the commons, and the corrosive nature of selfishness. See, I was taught from an early age that selfishness is something that we should avoid. Now, I'm sure this isn't your story. But looking back over my life, I'm amazed by how often the lessons went unremembered by me. (laughs) I mean, I can see patterns where, despite my protestations, to the contrary, I've looked out first for my own interests. Taking the first and the biggest drink from life's Tonka truck before everybody else got a chance. Now as wonderful and selfless as we all can sometimes be, and as much as it hurts to admit, we humans often find ourselves swimming against the current of our own self-absorption. Don't we? And Jesus runs right smack into this problem in our text for today. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, what is he talking about? I, I, I don't see anything about selfishness in the gospel lesson this morning. I know. It's not immediately apparent, but that's part of why we're here, right? I mean, we need extra space to figure out what Jesus is all about and then what that means for how we're supposed to live our lives in response. Now, just before our passage in Luke this morning, Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee. He's been preaching and teaching, casting out demons, healing the people that he encounters. But you see, all of this perambulating isn't random. He's headed somewhere. And this destination colors our understanding of everything Jesus says and does along the way. So, where is Jesus headed as we pick up our story this morning? Well, of course. Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem, finally? Yeah, that's right. Jesus bumps heads with Caesar and his minions, and that confrontation leaves Jesus on the wrong side of the Roman imperial justice system, literally twisting in the wind. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where he will die challenging the most powerful political machine in the world on behalf of the poor and the powerless. Right before our text begins, Jesus has just been answering a question about whether only, you know, maybe a few will be saved. And he responds by saying that salvation lies through a narrow doorway. Many people will attempt to enter this door on the strength Not of anything that they've done, but on the strength of who their parents were. Abraham, Isaac, prophets. In other words, they're convinced that the most important thing about themselves is the advantages they've inherited. Now, According to Jesus, the hordes of people who will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, they will find themselves welcome, not based on their parents or where they come from, but on nothing more determinative than that they've spent their lives bringing up the rear. Indeed, Jesus says, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And then immediately, Luke picks up our passage today, ties it together with this previous encounter, with this transitional phrase. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him. Now, once again, I feel the need to point out that Pharisees, as they're often portrayed in Scripture and in much of Christian tradition, are something of a caricature. The way that Luke recounts Jesus' life, the Pharisees are the poster children for that group of people who rely on their own storied heritage and excellent breeding. The people who are self-absorbed enough to believe that when it comes to entering the narrow door of salvation, they're supposed to have the Disney quick passes that allow them to jump to the head of the line. That's Luke's take on the Pharisees. But here's where things get... Interesting. The Pharisees warned Jesus to hop on a red-eye to Tupelo because King Herod wants to kill him. Now, we don't know if the Pharisees are genuinely concerned for Jesus' welfare or if this is just another in a long line of plots to trap him. What we do know from Luke is that Herod, who was historically a violent and self-servant client king of Caesar's, who'd already killed John the Baptist, this guy apparently has his sights set on Jesus. Now Jesus responds to this dire warning by saying, you can go and tell that fox for me that I'm busy announcing God's new realm. And I'm doing this on my way to Jerusalem, which is a tough road because we all know that Jerusalem is the place that prophets go to die. Now, what Jesus says next is interesting, I think. He says, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Jesus heads to Jerusalem to protect God's children, but he's not under in any illusions about what he'll be able to accomplish there, or how the whole thing is going to end for him. He knows. But what I find significant about this text is the repetition of a single word. Now, it probably doesn't jump out at you in English, but in Greek, the word just sort of sits there right in the middle of the text. It causes a lot of trouble. Now, what is that word well, it's a variation on the Greek word thelo, which means probably nothing to you, but is translated something like wish or desire. First, we find that Herod desires to kill Jesus. And then we see that Jesus desires to gather the children of Jerusalem as a hen gathers her chicks. And finally, we learn that the children of Jerusalem have no desire to be gathered at all. Now, the root word is the same, but the objects of desire are worlds apart. Like a villain in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, Herod desires to rid the world of another meddlesome prophet... The children of Jerusalem care too much about their own lives to desire to be gathered by Jesus at all. And Jesus desires to protect those vulnerable to Caesar's whims and his Galilean, those of his Galilean henchmen. Specifically Herod in this case. In other words, the desires of everyone in this story are about themselves. Except Jesus, whose desires center on those without the resources to protect themselves from the clever foxes around them. I mean, desire, after all, isn't a bad thing. It's the object of our desires that defines us. If our desires extend only so far as ourselves and those close to us, then we've started walking down the road in the opposite direction of Jesus, whose desires always extend beyond himself to others. And we've seen this play out in our politics in shocking ways over the past few years, haven't we? I mean, usually the question about the object of our desires pops up when we start talking about freedom. Freedom is a word that gets thrown about quite casually these days, but unfortunately, what too many people mean by freedom is Freedom from responsibility for anybody but myself and those I love. Freedom on this reading means something like, you can't tell me what to do, I can do whatever I want. Why? Because it's a free country. I mean, come on. Where else do you hear talk like that? Children, right? Freedom, read this way, amounts to an ever more elaborate rationalization of selfishness. I mean, think about the issues you can pass through this lens. Health care, unemployment insurance, immigrants, state-sanctioned violence against black people, houselessness, student loan debt, food insecurity. I mean, think about the refugees from Ukraine who are living their worst night- nightmares right now because of the selfishness of another fox, a Russian Herod whose desires always seem to center on himself. Now, if my knee-jerk response to the pain of others is immediately to separate myself from it in the name of freedom and then to claim that I have no responsibility, I'm not following Jesus who desires to gather all those people as a hen gathers her chicks to protect and feed and heal them. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm not sure how else to say it. The Tonka truck is here, it's full of water, and I'm thirsty. Now that may be understandable in a six-year-old, but it certainly is not the way that Jesus calls us to live together. Instead, Jesus understands our desires, the application of our freedom as an opportunity for someone else. Freedom, as Jesus proclaims it, isn't freedom from, it's freedom for. It's not freedom from responsibility, it's freedom for responsibility, for for, for living a life centered on other people especially those who come from the east and the west, the north and the south, those who always use, who are so used to taking their place at the back of the line. See, following Jesus is about correctly ordering the desires of our hearts, beginning with the desire for a new realm in which the last shall finally be first, and the first will bring up the rear. The heart of desire in the new world that God is creating finds its home by focusing on the hearts of others. According to Jesus, love is the price of admission. But it's a price worth paying because what lies on the other side of that narrow door is the very world God intended for us to inhabit from the beginning.